Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today we are continuing our series on the history of U.S. imperialism. This one today is the height of the Cold War. Once again, the PSMLS is a PCUSA-initiated school, not a party school, so this allows us to have a variety of different opinions. And as always, if you have any questions about other stuff, feel free to ask any of the comrades here about anything. Um, so with that being said, is there any word from National before we begin? Well, just really quickly, since I made this class and I'm going to be presenting it tonight, uh, I just wanted to say that this was definitely a class that we had to fit a lot into. There was a lot, comrades, that happened when it came to U.S. imperialism in the 1960s and 1970s. So you're going to see things briefly glossed over. You're going to be wondering more details. I foresee a lot of classes resulting just from this one class alone, but just bear with us tonight as we try to get through the chronology of these events. But with that out of the way, we can go ahead and get started. So this is the history of U.S. imperialism, height of the Cold War. So this class is going to range from 1960 to 1975. And what we're going to be learning today is, of course, about the major international activities of U.S. imperialism between 1960 and 1975 especially in regards to Cuba and Vietnam. Uh, we're going to be learning about other U.S. or U.S.-backed interventions, coups, and otherwise interference around the world during this era, and about some uh, domestic manifestations of U.S. imperialism and the creation of the new left in the 1960s as it relates to that. First off, just a series recap for comrades that haven't been here. We've had four parts in this series so far. Uh, in May, we covered history of U.S. imperialism origins, which honestly went from 1776 until 1914, but just uh, the imperialism part was mostly 1898 to 1914, going over Spanish-American War, Philippine-American War, Banana Wars, that sort of thing, as U.S. imperialism emerges. Uh, then in June, we covered history of U.S. imperialism World War I, and that was as well as the interwar period, so 1914 to 1939. In July, we covered history of U.S. imperialism World War II, which went from 1939 to a little after 1945, just talking about some post-war constructs, uh, but it was mostly about World War II and our emergence as a superpower. And then last month, uh, August, we did history of U.S. imperialism Dawn of the Cold War, which was 1945 to 1960. So we went over things like Greece, Korea, Iran, etc. But now we'll go ahead and get started. The first two sections, which are on Cuba and Vietnam. So this first one is on Cuba. The military-industrial complex and the nuclear war plan. Uh, this is Eisenhower's warning. Upon leaving office, Dwight D. Eisenhower felt compelled to warn the American public about the rise of a military-industrial complex, the emergence of a, quote, permanence, armaments industry of vast proportions, end quote. And that's uh, Eisenhower's words himself. John F. Kennedy was inaugurated president on January 20th, 1960. I think that might have been 61, sorry. Upon coming into office, his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, was tasked with ascertaining the alleged missile gap between the United States and the Soviet Union, in which the Soviets allegedly had the edge. In three weeks, McNamara discovered that there was no Soviet advantage in terms of nuclear weapons, but rather an American advantage. The U.S. had 25,000 nuclear weapons. The Soviets had 2,500. The U.S. had 1,500 heavy bombers. 
a thousand of which were in striking range of the USSR. The Soviets had 192. The US had 45 intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Soviets had just four. Now to talk about Cuba. The Cuban Revolution of 1959 came to its victory at the beginning of 1959, January. A socialist revolution was successfully waged just 90 miles from the United States. And U.S. capitalist influence, which had been involved in Cuba since the Spanish-American War of 1898, was banished. And Cuban sugar, tobacco, and more were nationalized. In the midst of fighting in 1958, the Eisenhower administration placed an embargo on arms exports to Cuba. And this was to either side, Batista or the uh, revolutionaries. Following the nationalization of U.S. oil in Cuba, the Eisenhower administration widened it to a trade embargo on everything except for food and medicine. Cuba responded by nationalizing all U.S. business in Cuba. In January 1961, directly before JFK's inauguration, the Eisenhower administration severed all diplomatic ties to Cuba. This administration was already planning the Bay of Pigs invasion, but passed the plan to the next presidency to implement. So let's talk about that. On April 14, 1961, the invasion fleet mustered up by U.S. military set sail under the cover of darkness for Cuba. On April 15th, eight American B-26B bombers began an assault on three airfields near Havana and one near Santiago de Cuba and incapacitated half of Cuba's Air Force. A CIA-owned Lockheed T-33 fighter made to look like a Cuban Air Force fighter also crashed on that day and was misreported as a Cuban defector in the media. Adlai Stevenson, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., spoke to them denying any U.S. attack on Cuba and held up an image of a crashed CIA plane to justify action against them. It's kind of similar to what Colin Powell did for the Iraq War uh, in 2002 or 2003. On April 16th, about 1,600 Cuban exiles arrived at the Bay of Pigs in seven ships, two of which were United Fruit Companies. And comrades will remember that corporation from the Origins class, uh, where they were behind a lot of the banana wars in that area. 114 rebels were killed and 1,200 were captured. Military leaders pushed Kennedy to provide further ground and air support, but Kennedy refused, and the Bay of Pigs invasion failed to topple the new socialist government in Cuba. So it was followed by three operations. Uh, as U.S. relations were worsening in the summer and fall of 1961, and the explosion of the largest nuclear weapon in history, Sarbamba, a 50-plus megaton thermonuclear bomb, which was over 3,000 times more powerful than Little Boy, occurred in the Soviet Union, the U.S. was still planning to act against Cuba again. Three operations were approved. Operation Mongoose was a terror campaign directed by Edward Lansdale and overseen by Robert F. Kennedy, with a budget of $4.4 million funding Cuban exiles to form resistance groups in Cuba, spread propaganda about the regime, and overthrow it. Operations ceased in 1962. Operation Northwoods was a plan to launch a series of false flag attacks on Cuban civilians to blame on the Castro regime and increase opposition to the regime and cause for war, including the shootdown of a civilian airliner, the sinking of Cuban refugees at sea, and more. Lastly, Operation Ortsak, which is Castro spelled backwards, was another planned complete invasion of Cuba with the aim of bringing down Castro. It would have likely resulted in a third world war. 
then the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and I'll remind comrades, we did a whole class on this last year. So if you want more explanation on this, you can go find that on YouTube or on our website. In October of 1962, we saw the closest that humanity had ever come to nuclear war. On the 13th of October, a U-2 recon plane spotted Soviet missiles in position in Cuba. This was perceived as Khrushchev lying to the United States about not placing weapons in Cuba and was to be revealed at the 45th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. On October 19th, Kennedy met with his chiefs of staff. They pushed for a full U.S. invasion of Cuba. U.S. missiles were in Turkey near the USSR. Kennedy was worried about leaving Cuban missiles untouched as it would harm his image and that of the U.S. on the global stage. On October 22nd, Kennedy informed the nation that any vessels headed towards Cuba with offensive weapons will be turned back. That day, the Strategic Air Command went to DEFCON 3, and three days later, DEFCON 2 for the first time in history. There were nuclear close calls, false computer readings of nuclear attacks, false reports the invasion of Cuba had already begun. The U.S. was flying planes over Cuba at treetop level. The Soviets possessed over 100 battlefield nuclear weapons near Cuba. Khrushchev sent a letter to Kennedy simply asking for a promise not to invade Cuba. On October 27th, the most dangerous moment in human history occurred. A Soviet submarine was being hunted by the USS Randolph, which was laying death charges that exploded near the submarine. Those on board thought a war had begun and they would die having done nothing. Two of three political officers on board voted to launch nuclear missiles. Only one, Vasily Arkhipov, refused and single-handedly saved humanity in that moment. The next day, the Soviets announced they would withdraw the missiles, and the crisis came to an end shortly after. And I believe we have a uh, clip from Untold History of the United States on this moment. On October 27th, an incident occurred that Schlesinger described as not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. The Russian ships were heading toward the quarantine line. One of four Soviet submarines sent to protect the ships was being hunted all day by the carrier USS Randolph. More than 100 miles outside the blockade, the Randolph began dropping depth charges, unaware the sub was carrying nuclear weapons. The explosion rocked the submarine, which went dark except for emergency lights. The temperature rose sharply, the carbon dioxide in the air reached near lethal levels, and people could barely breathe. Men began to faint and fall down. The suffering went on for four hours. Then, the Americans hit us with something stronger. We thought, that's it, the end. Panic ensued. Commander Valentin Savitsky tried, without success, to reach the general staff. He assumed the war had already started, and they were going to die in disgrace for having done nothing. He ordered the nuclear torpedo to be prepared for firing. He turned to the other two officers aboard. Fortunately for mankind, the political officer, Vasily Arkhipov, was able to calm him down and convince him not to launch probably single-handedly preventing nuclear war. All right, and with that, we'll take a brief round of questions and comments uh, before we get into the section on Vietnam. Thank you, comrade. Um, so if you have any questions or want to make a comment, please use the raise hand function. 
Um, we will get to you one by one. Yeah, it's quite an interesting period of time. Regarding Khrushchev, well, regarding the 20th century as a whole, Cuba became socialist, and every year, every year that there was the Soviet Union in existence, another country around the world went socialist, whether it's Ethiopia, whether it's Afghanistan. All around the world, every year, a country was becoming socialist. But at the same time, when we look at Khrushchev, what can we say about him? He was the head chief commissar of the Soviet Union up until his time of the leadership. So during the Great Patriotic War and all that, he was the head of all the political officers. And he was an old Bolshevik. So he did quite a good job there. But opportunistically, he attacked Stalin. And at this time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was weakness. He withdrew the Soviet missiles and a tit-for-tat move of the U.S. taking missiles out of Turkey. But there's still NATO bases in Turkey to this day. So when we look at Khrushchev, that's my question. How, how should we view Khrushchev? I think on my part, I view him as a very good communist, an excellent communist, but one of the worst leaders. In our party, we judge him. He put down the Hungarian uh, fascist uprising, but at the same time, he attacks or Czechoslovakia as well. That was Hungary, Hungary I'm sorry, 1956. Same 90 time, seconds. Attacks Stalin. So it's quite the legacy. A good communist, but a poor leader. Um, thank you, comrade. Comrade Angelo, do you want to respond to that? Uh, so I going to mention that dialectically, people should be looked at di that way and not in a solid, one-dimensional way. At different times in history, they perform different things. So I want to mention that just to verify what was said now by Comrade Chris. But on the issue of the, um, there was a, if they, remember, the first people to put the missiles was the U.S., they put them in Turkey. So the Soviets did get the missiles out of Turkey. So they won, in my opinion. They got the missiles out of Turkey. And that was an important, that was the objective, because those missiles were aimed right at the heart of world communism, which was the Soviet Union in Moscow. So I think it was a, a positive thing. I don't think it was negative at all. Um, and then there's some discussion of whether Khrushchev was even asked about that. You must have known this by now, the younger people. There was a discussion. Khrushchev claims he was never consulted when the troop, when the missiles were taken out of Cuba. So I think that's interesting also. That's all. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Um... Yes, Comrade. So I totally agree with uh, what Angelo said. The whole purpose of installing nuclear missiles in Cuba in the summer of 62 is because the US had installed the year before uh, the Jupiter missiles in Turkey. And at the same time, Khrushchev knew that they would find out. And then he could use that as a bargaining. I remove the missiles from Cuba, you remove the missiles from Turkey. And also Khrushchev added the deal about I remove my missiles and you will not invade Cuba. And the US agreed, you know, Jupiter missiles out of Turkey and a promise not to invade Cuba. They never did, by the way, since that time. So it was a victory of Khrushchev. He was right that time. You know, all the Stalin thing, he was very wrong. We all agree. But in Cuba, in 62, he was correct, just like he was in 56, 
in Hungary. Thank you, comrades. Yeah, I was just curious, what is a political leader um, as far as that just like a, um, is that like a position in the army or, or what? Yeah, I was just curious kind of what their role was. I think you mean the political officers that were on board the sub. Yeah, basically it was like you had to have somebody on the sub that was a commanding officer that had some form of political decision making on board that the commanders that weren't on the sub that were back at home or in the field would would trust with making decisions even if they couldn't contact somebody so that's why you had political officers on those submarines especially because there was nuclear missiles you couldn't just you know task a a captain or a sergeant with no real political uh, decision making skills with having the nuclear uh weaponry on board you had to have somebody that kind of knew when and, and how to use that. And and they had three uh, because, you know, as we know in our, you know, meetings and stuff with odd numbers, uh, that allowed for if, if uh, two of those officers decided to launch, one could calm them down and avoid it. And so that 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 was that was helpful to uh, avoid nuclear war at that time. I hope that answered your question. Thank you, comrades. Yeah, you mentioned it, which surprised the heck out of me, that there was a nuclear explosion somewhere in Russia, uh, the Tsar Bomba. And I, I don't remember in history ever hearing about that. Yeah, so the Tsar Bomba was the largest nuclear explosion in history. It was a 50 megaton uh, nuclear weapon. And remember, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those were kiloton weapons. So this was a thermonuclear weapon of vast proportions. It was uh, basically if you dropped it on somewhere like New York City, the entire city would be vaporized and a lot of the area around would be basically incinerated. Um, and it was being created because the United States was making weapons of that scale too. I think up to 15 or 25 megatons. Uh, but just an interesting thing I want to add here too about the Sarbamba is that this is like the upper limit of what we can do with a nuclear weapon before we actually do get into the real danger that the nuclear scientists found out about at the Manhattan Project, that you could possibly set the atmosphere on fire. If you went up to a 100 megaton nuclear weapon, it could possibly do that just because of the sheer scale of the nuclear explosion. But yeah, the Tsar Bomba was the largest nuclear explosion in history, and it was a Soviet one. And it's, I think it's one of the things that kind of, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, led us to understand that um, we were really putting the world in danger with that kind of uh, nuclear test and saber rattling. Okay. So I hope that answered your question. It certainly did. So you're saying that Soviets basically were testing this on their own turf. Okay. Yes. Yes. But it was tested in the Arctic, so it wasn't near anybody. 90 seconds. Thank you. Uh, I want to mention in your presentation, Cameron, you did not mention that the reasons why the missiles, Soviet missiles, were taken out of Cuba was because the United States took its missiles out of Turkey first. It's important to know that. The United States and the Soviet Union agreed that they would take the missiles out of Turkey and that the missile, U.S. missiles out of Turkey and Soviet missiles out of Cuba. So it just wasn't the Soviets um, who did it unilaterally. It was an agreement. So the threat 
to the Soviet Union, the belly, the belly of the Soviet Union was going to be attacked by U.S. And that was avoided. Thank you. Right. Thank you, comrade. And yes, that is correct. Yeah, I just wanted to say that we're lucky that guy intervened and uh, uh, went again. This was on the, the United States side, right? Where the guy intervened? No, that was uh, in a Soviet submarine. So that was a Soviet. Oh. Okay, then. Well, we're still lucky that he intervened and prevented it because we would have been screwed, let me just say. And I also wanted to comment. I thought one thing was absolutely hilarious is when Cuba responded to the United States by nationalizing corporations that the United States had in Cuba. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Thanks for the class. My question is what caused Kennedy to decide not to send more support to the Bay of Pigs invasion? Thank you. Yeah, so from what I was able to gather when I was researching this, uh, Kennedy basically came into the administration wanting to be more diplomatic um, and have more peace talks with other countries. But his military chiefs of staff were always pushing him for further escalation, for further military intervention. And around this time, not only did he not want to continue the uh, Bay of Pigs, um, but he also refused to intervene against the Pathet Lao and Laos. And so uh, Kennedy was making decisions at this time, some of which were uh, supportive of U.S. imperialism, some were holding it back. Um, and we can theorize on that about whether or not that led into his assassination. But I hope that answers your question. Yes, it seems like uh, that the Soviet Union should have been uh, forthcoming about like uh, facing the missiles to Cuba. They had a good case that they were doing so defensively and uh, to protect Cuba. And they point out that uh, the U.S. had missiles near them, so they could have just said that they have a right to do so, and they have permission to keep the government, and they shouldn't have kept it. Uh, it hurt their credibility to, like, deny it. Yeah, and back then as well, another thing to take into context is that um, Khrushchev was set to reveal it at the 45th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. I think it was going to be at one of their party congresses. But that kind of set up a dangerous situation where it was kind of a surprise to the United States, but also on the flip side of it, it's not like the United States let the Soviet Union know when it put missiles in Turkey. So, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to add to why um, JFK did not back uh, that second push to save the Cuban exiles in the Bay of Pigs. He just had become president. He did not like the Bay of Pigs, the thought of it, but he went along with it. Just wanted to add, it was Cuban exiles that were in the Bay of Pigs. And what if you remember, they talked about uh, brandishing that uh, CIA plane, and that was their reason for going in and saving these prisoners. But by then, Kennedy got the lay of the land, and he realized, yeah, that it was a, a ploy, and everyone was pushing him to uh, basically you know, go in and rescue all the exiles, so on and so forth. And he looked at his naval uh, commanders and saying, no, you got me into this position purposely. So you would make it hard for me to have a decision like this. And he says, I'm not going to play this game. 
Now, this was all um, uh, RFK Jr. was the one that has talked about those first few months when JFK was in office and McNamara and company really tried to push him around and he learned very quickly and I and he was not popular. So I just felt it very interesting to to see what our, shall we say, general staff can do to the president of the United States at any time. Thank you, comrade. And at least uh, Kennedy showed a little bit more courage in the face of his military advisors than somebody like Obama would later do. Um, and we'll see that in future classes on this subject. Um, on the topic of um, Kennedy and Cuba, for anyone who hasn't, you might want to look into something called Operation Northwoods. Basically, Kennedy's military advisors were not only encouraging him to intervene in Cuba, but they proposed that to justify it, they would bomb American civilian naval vessels and blame it on the Cubans. Um, also, does anyone know if the U.S. is currently storing nuclear missiles in Turkey? Good I question. I can't remember specifically whether or not the U.S. is currently doing so. I feel like I remember something, but I don't want to give misinformation. I would say I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing so. It's a NATO country. We have a military alliance with them. And I mean, we've done it before. So who's to say we wouldn't do it again? But if somebody does have an answer to that, they can go ahead and raise their hand. Okay. Thank you, everyone. We will have to return to the presentation. Please keep your hands up. We will get to you in the next round of questions. All right. So... This is the second part of the uh, first section on the uh, international thing. Uh, this is on Vietnam, of course, what comrades were probably expecting to see the most of for this class since it had so much of an impact on just everything and our country uh, afterwards. Uh, so origins of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Uh, comrades might remember from our August Revolution class that initially American OSS forces were sent to Vietnam in 1945 to assist the Viet Minh with the defeat of the Japanese puppet government in the August Revolution. By 1950, however, the United States turned on the Viet Minh in the midst of the Third Chinese Civil War, and in 1951 authorized $150 million in aid to the French in Vietnam. In 1954, the Vietnamese defeat the French at Dien Bien Phu and the Geneva Conference occurred in which a temporary division of the country was proposed and accepted by a number of countries, except for the United States and the state of Vietnam, the, the Southern Vietnam. On November 1st, 1955, Eisenhower deployed the Military Advisory Assistance Group to train the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, or ARVN, uh, marking the official beginning of direct U.S. military intervention in Vietnam. Uh, that's why they say it's a 20-year thing from 55 until 75. U.S. ground troops would not arrive for another full decade, and U.S. efforts during Eisenhower and Kennedy administration were mostly centered around backing Arvin forces, who were committing massive violence against Buddhists in Vietnam and spraying herbicides and defoliants over the Vietnam forests. Kennedy even avoided intervening in Laos in 61 when North Vietnam invaded the country. 1965 to 1968, Vietnam War and protests. 
On March 2nd, six days before the arrival of troops at Da Nang, this is in 1965, the United States began Operation Rolling Thunder, a sustained bombing campaign against the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, People's Republic of China, and Democratic People's Republic of Korea in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, because uh, Chinese and Korean soldiers were helping out in the Vietnamese conflict. This lasted from March of 65 to November of 68 and killed between 50 and 200,000 people in North Vietnam. In July of 65, LBJ increased the troop count to 125,000 and planned for the drafting of 1,000 young men into the military for service in Vietnam every day. In 1966, the troop count increased to 385,000. McNamara started Project 100,000, which lowered mental and medical standards for military recruitment in the face of low volunteer numbers. LBJ also approved napalm, white phosphorus, and expanded free fire zones where anything that moved could be killed. Troop counts were over 500,000 by 1967. As far back as 1963, large protests were occurring in the United States against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. By October of 1967, the opposition was in a state of large-scale dedicated militancy. 100,000 people rallied in Washington, D.C., attempting to march to the Pentagon. It was in 67. By October, protests turned violent. MLK was speaking out and was killed in April of 1968. The infamous 1968 Democratic National Convention protests also occurred at this time, which you can see uh, on the left with the famous phrase from that protest, the whole world is watching. This was the age of the new left and their false organizing would only become more apparent as time went on. In 1968, we have the Tet Offensive, Malai, and Nixon. In January of 1968, the North Vietnamese launched the Tet Offensive, a massive surprise attack on U.S. and Arvin forces throughout South Vietnam. The offensive was the deadliest part of the Cold War, and the Battle of Hue and winter of 1968 was the deadliest conflict of the Vietnam War, leaving over 5,000 dead. I know that the conflict overall killed more, but in terms of just battles in that war. Uh, in November of 1969, journalist Seymour Hersh broke the news publicly about a massacre of around 500 men, women, and children in the Son Mi village of Vietnam. I apologize if I didn't pronounce that right. It's Malai on the U.S. Army maps, which is why we know it as the Malai Massacre, uh, in March of 1968. The villagers were rounded up, burned, shot, tortured, raped, and gang raped. It was called the most shocking episode of the Vietnam War, and in the public revelation of it and the general counsel of the army addressing the event, Bill Downs of ABC said it amounted to the first public expression from the U.S. military that they may have committed genocide. America's public perception in Vietnam and at home was at its worst, and Richard Nixon won in this climate against the Democratic nominee Hubert Humphrey, who had been unpopularly nominated in the chaotic 1968 DNC convention, and after years of his involvement in the disastrous Johnson administration. Nixon planned to draw down U.S. forces in Vietnam while preparing the South to fight for itself in a process called Vietnamization. Laos and Cambodia, as we have to bring this up when it comes to uh, Vietnam since they're right there. 
During the U.S. intervention in Vietnam, the United States chose to spread its military intervention to both Cambodia and Laos. The CIA trained and equipped forces in Laos in the 1950s to fight against communists in the region. In 1961, Kennedy was berated by imperialists for not intervening in Laos when it was invaded by North Vietnam. In 1964, the United States began a campaign known as the Secret War in Laos and launched operations Barrel Roll, Steel Tiger, and Tiger Hound, all bombing campaigns in Laos. The U.S. dropped 2,756,941 tons of ordnance on 113,716 Laotian sites and 230,516 sorties between 1965 and 1973 alone, making Laos the most heavily bombed country in the world. Unexploded ordnance still blankets the countryside. Neighboring Cambodia was also to suffer. In 1969, the United States began Operations Menu and Freedom Deal, massive carpet bombing campaigns carried out by B-52 Stratofortresses. These were nuclear-capable bombers, the latter of which covered the whole eastern half of Cambodia. It was a failure and created the conditions necessary for the Khmer Rouge to take power and commit the Cambodian genocide between April 1975 and January 1979, where over 1.5 million people were killed by the government of Pol Pot, who the U.S. later supported after the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia in 1979. 1969 to 1975, Vietnam War under Nixon. Vietnamization was Nixon's goal, but he did not intend a North Vietnamese victory. 540,000 troops were in Vietnam when Nixon began to draw them down. While publicly intending to end the war, his Secretary of State Henry Kissinger said, quote, I refuse to believe a little fourth-rate power like North Vietnam does not have a breaking point, end quote. His administration spent six years trying to do that, break North Vietnam. In November of 69, hundreds of thousands of Americans were protesting the war. In December, the first draft lottery was held since 1942, and in the April of 70, Nixon announced 150,000 troops would be withdrawn from Vietnam. In 1971, the Pentagon Papers were released by Daniel Ellsberg, who's pictured on the right, uh, detailing U.S. involvement in Vietnam as far back as 1945, and Kissinger announced $7.5 billion in aid to South Vietnam as troops were scheduled to leave in nine months. The last U.S. combat troops left Vietnam on March 29, 1973. And with the 1973 oil crisis affecting the U.S.'s ability to lend support to South Vietnam and their inevitable defeat in Vietnam's War of National Liberation, South Vietnam fell in April of 1975 with the liberation of Saigon, known as the Fall of Saigon, or Black April, in the West. The U.S. lost the war in Vietnam after 20 years, billions of dollars, and millions of Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotian lives. And I believe with that, we'll stop for another round of questions and comments. I'm probably the only one on this meeting, maybe I'm wrong, but was affected by the lottery. Okay, there was a draft lottery. Does anybody here, was it involved with that? A little too young. 
It was on TV. Listen to this. It's like something out of a game show. There was a big cage, and there were little balls in the cage, and they would roll it with a crank. And when they would stop, a ball would come out, and the ball had a date on it, and it would say, January 3rd, 1949. That means that you're the first one to be called up within the next few months. So your life was dependent on a lottery. Could you even think of that today, the young people? You have no power over it. On TV, they have a lottery. The number comes up, and then you have to go to Vietnam. It's scary. Think about that. So one of the few times in my life I was lucky. One of the few times. But really, the important times. I didn't get money, but I got something more important than money. I was not sent to Vietnam. My lottery came. There were 365 days a year. And they went by the dates. And mine was 360. Can you imagine? So it were 360 numbers that I had before me. So the chances for me to go into Vietnam in the next year or two were nil. So I just want you to know my parents were ready to sell their house and my father his business and go to Canada. People have to understand what this meant which meant they would escape to Canada so their children would not be liable to be involved in the uh, draft. So in effect, what the bourgeoisie called draft dodging, they called it draft uh -huh. dodging. Other people called it draft resistance. They were resisting the draft. So I just want people to know on a personal level, I was involved with that. Thank you. Thank you for that, comrade. Yes, one quick additional detail that was left out. The U.S. also propped up their own puppet regime in Cambodia, and that was the government of Lon Nol, and that's all I wanted to add. Thank you for that addition, comrade. Yeah, in Cambodia, to give a sense of just how bad the bombings were, out of every 10 Cambodians, one was killed by an American bomb during the Vietnam War. And that's only half as bad as the percentage was for Korea. And also, on the topic of the draft, I think when media commentators from CNN to Fox to NBC to TikTok liberals talk about, you know, whether we need to bring the draft back every couple year and a half when it was for Iran under Trump or Taiwan because of Pelosi. I think it's worth remembering just what they're talking about and how casual the ruling class is with our lives. Thank you, comrade. And I think it's also just scary to think about as well because we're in a time where you know, the military has women in it. Um, at one point, you know, transgender and LGBT plus people weren't banned in the military. So you think about the wider percentage of our demographic that could be sent to a war now. And, and it's really scary. And, you know, there's a lot of bourgeois commentators that will get out there and go, oh, there's no chance. They'll never bring back the draft. There's no chance. Um, I wouldn't be so sure of that. I, I think that that is definitely a possibility, especially if you look at a large scale conflict like uh, a third world war starting. I think that it's possible they could bring it back. Thank you. Uh, 
Anyways, the, the yes. thing I wanted to weigh in with, just wanted to mention that contemporaneous with the Vietnam War um, was in 1965 and 1966, the practical extermination um, of the left in Indonesia. You know, and I, I think it was about a million people that were killed. There's a really excellent book that I highly recommend. Uh, it was just a few years ago called The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. Um, but the extent of the American involvement in these massacres really can't be overstated. Um, the CIA and the State Department provided lists, you know, with tens of thousands of people, maybe more than that, um, to the Indonesian government and military that then coordinated with local gangsters um, to carry out these massacres um, that are just really horrible on a, a level that my words can't capture. Um, but the other thing that I'd like to say is that we should remember that the Vietnamese won their war. Um, I've been to Vietnam today, and it is an incredible and deeply encouraging example of socialist construction. Um, although it was very noticeable to me, kind of the difference in, you know, just the attitudes that people had um, in Hanoi versus, you know, Ho Chi Minh City, the, the former occupied Saigon, um, where it, it seemed like, you know, life was just still tougher for people in different ways and the inequalities were still greater, um, you know, particularly in terms of, of housing and things like that. Um, so the point is, is that Vietnam is a, an inspiring country uh, that continues on its socialist journey today. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on um, something that I think we definitely should have a class on at some point, and that is the life and times of Seymour Hirsch. You know, he's been a very influential uh, journalist for decades now. And, you know, he broke my live massacre. And in recent times, he's been really kind of positive to, you know, our movement and just other left wing movements around the world. You know, he covered in 2013 that it was Syrian animals who used chemical attacks, not the Assad government, you know, and that was groundbreaking at the time. And then recently with the Nord Stream. Uh, pipeline and that revelation. But I think that at some point we definitely should have a class on Seymour Hersh. Thank you, comrade. I definitely agree with that. We're going to go ahead and add that to the suggestions. I just wanted to add that the, one of the big reasons we got heavily involved in Vietnam was because of a made up scenario called the Tonkin Bay incident, where uh, it was alleged that Vietnam, the North Vietnamese troops attacked a ship, but later the uh, Secretary of Defense admitted that they were lying about it. And we need to be on the lookout for similar things as the battles in Ukraine intensify and get worse. Uh, we should be on the lookout for other fake things and things that could be constructed to get us into the war. That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I'll just add on that as well, that when it came to uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, it was kind of similar to the USS Maine, which we learned about when it came to the Spanish-American War. They even plan to do the same thing to Cuba. It's weird that they always use uh, attacks on boats as this uh, narrative to start wars. But uh, what happened with the Gulf of Tonkin was there were uh, North Vietnamese boats that came within like 10,000 yards, yards, not even feet of a of the ship USS Maddox and initially it was reported to the US State Department that 
the North Vietnamese had fired upon the USS Maddox and then the Maddox fired back. But actually the Maddox fired first at these North Vietnamese boats and then they fired machine guns back at the Maddox and only one bullet ever hit the boat. So we went to war in Vietnam over one bullet and all of the Congress members in the House voted for that resolution and all but two senators uh, voted for that resolution as well. Uh, one of the senators was actually from my state, Oregon. Uh, Comrade General Secretary, looks like you want to say something real quick. You have the floor. Yeah, really quick. This is not the first time. What happened with Colin Powell? Weapon of mass destruction. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. None. And so they use that excuse. What happened in Grenada? What did Reagan do? He said, we're going in there to defend American students that were in a medical school there. He went in and they overthrew the government in Grenada. That's what they did. So they always, this is not the first time that someone said we got to be on the on the lookout for this. Constantly. It started with the Maine in Cuba in the, during the Spanish-American War. Remember the Maine. That was a joke, that slogan. The Maine was not blown up by any Cuban-Spanish forces. Nothing like that happened. It was an internal thing. And so you're correct, and they're always going to bring this up. Thank you. Comrade, you have the floor. Uh, although eventually the missiles were indeed uh, removed from Turkey, at the very beginning, of course, they weren't. And the reason for that is it's, it's amusing in some ways. When every president, when they turn over to a new administration, they basically, the new administration comes in and gets a complete overhaul of, of, of uh, detail and uh, what, what's going on, on you know, behind the scenes. And when it came to the military, it came to the missiles in Turkey, uh, the Kennedy administration was told that the missiles in Turkey were unstable and more, probably more a danger to their own troops than to, to the Soviet Union. He immediately ordered them to be removed. When the missile crisis came in 62, Khrushchev, besides asking for, you know, hands off Cuba, also said, quid for quo, you should remove your missiles in Turkey. Of course, this flabbergasted Kennedy, who called up, you know, the defense secretary and said, weren't these missiles removed? Who then, he had a check, and came back to him and said, no. 90 seconds. So, <laughs> so it was a tough, he had given orders and they weren't even followed through. And of course, eventually then, he, then he told Khrushchev, no. Of course, very shortly, within a few months, he did, of course, secretly relent when the, everything cooled down and we did secretly remove them from Turkey. Thank you, comrade. Uh Okay, yeah, I just wanted to touch more on the political commissar and its roles. Um, it could be kind of described as like they provided ideological support for the troops that were in their unit. They kind of served the purpose as well as like a chaplain in the, in the United States military. But, you know, I wanted to bring that up because it's, it's important to know that, you know, the political officer... Um, like Brezhnev was a political officer, a commissar in the war, Khrushchev as well. But, you know, they were basically, they were put on a list for execution if they were ever captured by the Nazis, because the Nazis understood their potential to rally and keep the morale up within their troops. That's all. 
Thank you, comrade. That was an interesting tidbit. Hey, comrades. Yeah, I'm very happy that we talked about the Tsar Bomba. So what was Tsar Bomba? It was dropped at, it's called Novaya Zemolya. It's an island up in the north of the Soviet Union. And comrades can search that, Novaya Zemolya. There's actually a good um, channel that produces content, uh, like on the Ukraine war, uh, which uses that channel like on Rumble and social media. But in today's day and age, the newest missile, which is actually a Soviet missile, is called Sarmat. And it was mentioned the Tsar Bomba, was that, which was the biggest bomb ever, was 50 megatons. The Sarmat, which is the one that just went operational this year, which is Soviet technology, their warheads are 750 megatons. From what I understand, it destroys something like the size of France in one hit. And each missile, which is a hypersonic missile, it travels almost 4,000 miles per hour and changes its flight trajectory. And it carries 12 to 20 of these warheads. So 12 to 20 Francis can be blown up uh, by one missile. And this is just one missile. They have them in uh, the old Soviet missile sites and also the mobile units. Uh, but regarding the Laos conflict, the Veterans for Peace organization works with us. And in San Diego, it's their president, he was one of the leadership and the national leadership. And some of the comrades who are on the phone here can speak about this too. They, we met them at one of the peace rallies earlier this year. But the the member who was the president took a picture with our flag in the past. He was in Laos at the time. And he said there was so much illegal stuff going on. He actually said those old atomic Annie guns, the ones that shot nuclear warheads, it was like a recoilless rifle that shot them only a couple miles. They were using them to like just blow up mountaintops. That's what he said in his own words. He said no one talks about it. Thank you, comrade. I know that during the Vietnam War, uh, part of the um, or a big part of the reason why public perception of the war was negative was because of how televised the war was. I was just curious if anyone who lived in that period and the sub subsequent years, uh, if they could explain what how um, news coverage of wars after the Vietnam War changed. Thank you for the question, comrade. Uh, yes, yeah, so before, I think the big breaking point was, of course, the Pentagon Papers. Before that, uh, everything was going good. We, we, were, we were winning the war. Everything was hunky-dory. <laughs> and eventually, it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be long. There was, a, you know, right at the end of the tunnel, and I don't know if anybody ever read or interested. You should be reading the Pentagon Papers. It was uh, utterly fantastic. It basically, it wasn't something, it, it blew the, the, the lid off the lies and, and showed you that we were losing the war. And one of the reasons, of course, that Nixon, and I was in the Army at that time, and I was involved with the anti-war movement within the military. And basically, one of the reasons that Nixon wanted to, wind the war down for Americans is because the Americans didn't want to fight anymore. They were basically deserting. Uh, they were uh, fragging or sending grenades into uh, gung-ho officers' tents uh, that was supposed to be sending them in, out into the field the next day. Uh, it was basically amazing. It was basically almost a, a counter-revolution within the military. And uh, they it got up to the very top brass and this, of course, wound up spreading to the general republic and to the news. 
to the general news. I mean, you have people like uh, Walter Cronkite, who basically, you know, when when faced with the fact that uh, the the truth was seconds. out there, he turned against the United States, and other people were basically turning against the United States military and, and basically unleashing the truth. Uh, and it was basically, you know, what happened was going to definitely happen uh, because the American uh, out in the in the field basically weighed down their arms and uh, two minutes would refuse to fight. Thank you, comrade. Yes, comrade. Uh, earlier mentioned uh, the North Vietnam invasion of Laos. It's the wording is a little bit uh, incorrect because it was not like North Vietnam, you know, at the time. Vietnam was separated in North and South, right, after 1955. So it was an assistance of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, right, the North, to the Patet Lao, which is the Lao Red. You had the Lao Red and the Lao White. And uh, the Patet Lao was fighting the Lao White. So they, are, they gave them assistance, military. And at the same time, they were able to have the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which goes from the north to the south of Vietnam, right? Going through Laos, which is right next to it in the mountains, right? So it's not really an invasion, you know, we should uh, not think of it that way, just an assistance. Kind of like uh, the Red Army assisting Afghanistan in 79, or say the Russian government assisting Syria as we speak, you know, stuff like that. That's all, comrade. Thank you, comrade. Comrade beat me to the punch. Daniel Ellsberg is probably one of the greatest Americans to have ever lived uh, and should be regarded as a hero of the working class for leaking thousands of classified documents during the Vietnam War and basically putting a stop to it. Uh, Before that time, people basically still trusted the government. They trusted, they took what the government said at face value. They believed what the government said. And his leak basically uh, shattered any perception. And it wasn't just him. It was the combined courage of not just him, but also the newspapers who knowingly knew that if they published his papers, they were going to be shut down by the FBI. And eight, nine, ten newspapers were shut down. Uh, and then others continued to knowingly publish the Pentagon papers uh, for doing so. And I always make sure to show my students this uh, every single year. Uh, but Daniel Ellsberg, The Most Dangerous Man in America, is a fantastic documentary on this. It's only about 55 minutes long, but I make sure to always show my uh, students this when I'm teaching. And there's one quote in particular, which is that when you accept that what you are about to do could lead to your death, then there is nothing that you have yet left to fear. Um, And that was what Daniel Ellsberg heard from a Vietnam protester, someone who was drafted and refused to go to war, jail, and knew he could probably be killed if he did so. Um, and he did it anyway. And that was what convinced Ellsberg to do so. So I hope that we can all have the same courage and conviction as Ellsberg, uh, who passed away sadly this year. Um, may he rest in peace. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to try my best to answer comrade's question. Of course, I didn't live during the time. I never lived one moment in the 20th century. But What I do know is that after the Vietnam War, of course, we didn't have a major military conflict going on to the scale of Vietnam, and we didn't have one again until basically the Gulf War. And we'll talk about this in our next classes, but in the 1980s with the invasion of Granada, which was probably, you know, the biggest thing for that decade, 
all that was offered was U.S. military, basically propaganda footage, um, and, and not until even after the fact. It was very limited. Um, when the Gulf War came around, once again, it was very limited. You did have war reporters, but I think it was a conscious decision on the part of U.S. media to only show what uh, made the U.S. empire look good, what made Americans uh, you know, think that we were in some big glorious war. When Vietnam was on t television screens every night, it was the early years of television. Uh, I don't think that the military quite understood um, just the effect that they'd have on the public by allowing them to see as much of the war as they did. Um, and I think that's why after Vietnam, you didn't see nearly as much of the uh, very open, very brutal war coverage every night. So 90 seconds. Comrades question. All right. So this is the second section on the international. Other interventions abroad. Congo crisis. The Democratic Republic of Congo, or otherwise known as Congo Kinshasa, and Republic of Congo, otherwise known as Congo Brazzaville, are two separate countries in Central Africa, which were colonized by Belgium and France, respectively. In 1960, the first elections took place in the Democratic Republic of Congo after declaring independence from Belgium. Prime Minister Lumumba was elected and very quickly deemed as dangerous and easily manipulated by Soviets by the CIA. U.S. Ambassador Claire Timberlake and CIA Station Chief Larry Devlin coordinated covert plans to overthrow Lumumba. Devlin contacted prominent Congolese politicians known for their animosity towards the prime minister. In July 1960, mutiny broke out in the Force Publique, the Army of the DRC, as soldiers revolted against their white officers. The chaos spread through the Congo and Lumumba called for Soviet aid. In response, Ambas Ambassador Timberlake attempted to convince President Kasavubu to vote out Lumumba, while CIA Chief Devlin worked to undermine the Prime Minister's authority. He was given $100,000 by the CIA to hire agitators and organize anti-Lumumba demonstrations, which often turned violent. In 1961, Devlin and Mobutu orchestrated a coup, capturing and murdering Lumumba and leaving President Kasavubu as leader. In 1965, Mobutu overthrew Kasavubu and another CIA-backed coup. His dictatorship lasted until his deposition in 1997. Brazil. In 1961, Joao Goulart was inaugurated as the 24th president of Brazil. He was seen as a radical reformist and distrusted by the conservatives and some prominent military leaders. In 1964, a military coup called Operation Brother Sam, organized by U.S. Ambassador Lincoln Gordon, secretly backed by the U.S. naval troops, overthrew Goulart. This led to a period of Brazilian dictatorship, which lasted for 21 years from 1964 to 1985. The military regime committed terrible human rights abuses, such as institutionalized torture, murder, and forced disappearances. In 1967, the regime enacted a new restrictive constitution, which stifled freedom of speech and political opposition. It adopted nationalism, capitalist economic development, and anti-communist guidelines. 
Brazil's military government provided a model for other military regimes and dictatorships throughout Latin America, systematized by the so-called doctrine of national security, which justified the military's actions as operating in the interests of national security in a time of crisis, creating an intellectual basis upon which other military regimes re relied. Dominican Republic. The U.S. has had a long history of interfering with political affairs in the Dominican Republic, including U.S. occupation from 1916 to 1924. Uh, Rafael Trujillo, a U.S.-trained Dominican national, was left to command the National Army after the U.S. withdrew occupation. He imposed a dictatorship for over three decades, plundering the Dominican Republic's industry for his own benefit. Despite his repressive regime, the U.S. supported him because he served U.S. financial interests and foreign holdings. In 1960, President Eisenhower approved a State Department memorandum detailing how the U.S. was ready to dispatch warships to Dominican waters or to land troops on Dominican soil in the event of the flight, assassination, death, or overthrow of Trujillo to prevent the rise of a regime that was sympathetic to Fidel Castro in Cuba. In June 1960, the Assistant Secretary of State for Latin American Affairs gave unofficial approval to the CIA to provide clandestine assistance to dissidents in the DR necessary to develop a force to overthrow Trujillo. On May 30, 1961, Trujillo was assassinated by Dominican nationals. The next president was ousted by a coup just seven months into his term, leading to a widespread chaos in the country. In 1965, President Johnson ordered troops into the DR through Operation Power Pack to protect American lives and property. He also declared that this military action was to prevent the establishment of a communist dictatorship. 42,000 American armed forces were deployed to the Dominican Republic and remained there until 1966. Over 3,000 Dominicans lost their lives. Indonesia. The Communist Party of Indonesia, otherwise known as PKI, was the largest non-ruling communist party in the world, with members in every level of government. With the support of the president and air force, the party gained increasing influence at the expense of the army, causing friction. The U.S. cultivated a number of ties with officers of the military through exchanges and arms deals. This fostered a split in the military ranks with the U.S. and others backing a right-wing faction against a left-wing faction leaning towards the PKI. The intelligence agencies of the U.S., U.K., and Australia engaged in black propaganda campaigns against Indonesian communists. In October 1965, Indonesian National Armed Forces members assassinated six Indonesian army generals in an attempted coup. The coup was put down, but in the following weeks, the army, sociopolitical, and religious groups blamed the coup attempt on the Communist Party of Indonesia. Soon after, a mass purge led by Suharto resulted in the imprisonment and deaths of actual or suspected Communist Party members and sympathizers. Between 500,000 and 1.2 million people were killed, with some estimates going as high as 2 to 3 million. A top-secret CIA report from 1968 stated that the massacres rank as one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century. 
Despite the existence of extensive contacts between anti-communist army officers and the U.S. military establishment, training of over 1,200 officers and senior military figures, and providing weapons and economic assistance, the CIA denied active involvement in the killings. Declassified U.S. documents in 2017 reveal that the U.S. government had detailed knowledge of the mass killings from the beginning and was supportive of the actions of the, of the Indonesian army. Other CIA activities. Murder of Ernesto Che Guevara. In 1966, Che Guevara entered Bolivia to organize and lead a communist guerrilla movement. His activity did not go unnoticed by the CIA, who tracked his every move. In 1967, a Cuban-American CIA agent, Felix Rodriguez, is given a special assignment from in which he will use his skills in counter-guerrilla operations to assist the Bolivians in tracking down and capturing Che Guevara and his band. On October 9, 1967, Guevara was put to death by Bolivian soldiers, trained, equipped, and guided by the U.S. Green Beret and CIA operatives. Sino-Soviet split. The Sino-Soviet split was the breaking of political relations between the People's Republic of China and the USSR, caused by doctrinal divergences that arose from their different interpretations and practical applications of Marxism-Leninism, as influenced by their respective geopolitics during the Cold War. The CPSU saw coexistence with the West as in the mutual interest of both systems with respect to the dangers of nu nuclear war. The Chinese saw this as capitulation. The CPSU and its allied parties advocated using democratic and peaceful means to advance the struggles of the working class and toward win winning state power wherever those means were available. The CPC disparaged such method methods and proposed that the need for a revolutionary war in order to seize power was a universal law of class struggle. In 1965, at the 20th Congress of the CPSU, Khrushchev delivered a report criticizing Stalin. The CPC quickly expressed its disagreement with Khrushchev's report. As part of these exchanges, the CPC published texts seeking to refute several points made in Khrushchev's report. Due to growing dissent, a series of meetings of the world's communist parties were held. Though the goal was to build the unity, the meetings were dominated by the widening rift between the CPSU and the CPC. And at each, uh, both sides fought to have their views incorporated into the final documents. The documents of those meetings were among the last efforts made to compromise on several major issues between the two parties and themselves became reference points in the polemic that followed. The Nixon Mao Summit. In 1972, Nixon visited China in a strategic diplomatic overture. It was the first time a U.S. president would set foot in China while in office. This led to a peaceful relationship between the countries after years of diplomatic isolation. The purpose of Nixon's visit was to gain leverage over the Soviet Union, taking advantage of the Sino-Soviet split. Following this, there was a significant shift in the Cold War balance driving an ideological wedge between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, resulting in significant Soviet concessions and its eventual fall. Resolving the Vietnam War was a particularly important factor. National Security Council staffer and later U.S. Ambassador to China, Winston Lord noted that by flexibly dealing with both the Soviet Union and China, 
the United States sought to pressure both countries to reduce their support for North Vietnam and their new prioritization of relations with the United States. Thank you. And we will now jump to the next discussion section. And we'll also have an introduction of new members, if there are any. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on like the what brought up in the last section, um, you know, wars not being displayed on TV and, you know, mass media and things like this. Uh, you know, the capitalists are very smart. They've only put the wars that can gain sympathy for themselves and their like causes around the world. Like they show the Israelis, you know, getting attacked by Palestinians and they show the Ukrainians on TV and things like this, but they won't show Americans, you know, committing crimes or just being gung-ho like the way that they did in Vietnam. You know, it's just something to consider. Thank you, comrade. And that also goes to what um, Chelsea Manning had released with the um, Iraq videos. Um, I just wanted to make a brief comment um, about Brazil in particular. Um, so it was mentioned that there was a right-wing military dictatorship that was established in Brazil, and I believe it was on an episode of RevLeft Radio that I heard that for the Allende coup, it was not just the U.S. backing, but the coup people had backing from that military junta out of Brazil, and it was actually them as well that provided weapons and training for uh, the coup people for that, and also... Uh, eventually, Pinochet's Brazil, Argentina, Peru, they were all part of Operation Condor, which was a, um, a clandestine operation by the right-wing Latin American governments to intervene throughout the world and also even uh, in Latin America and abroad for their own purposes. A couple comments I wanted to make was for the uh, Dominican Republic, uh, Phil Oaks had a great song called The Marines Have Landed on Santa Domingo. That's a great song about that. And for Indonesia, if you haven't, please read the Jakarta Method. Thank you. Uh, what I wanted to say is, uh, so, when it, so when it comes to the uh, Nixon, uh, Nixon visit, an uh, additional layer of context I like to add is people here may or may not know this, but... Going as far back, I think at this time, Atchison might still be in the State Department. But uh, Stillwell, uh, uh, during the time of the War of Alliance, back when there was uh, a, uh, a United Front government in um, Chongqing, uh, there had been ideas of red diplomacy that had largely been shelved due to the Korean War. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't. There's a, a certain uh, history to a, a, a reopening dialogue with uh, People's China before Brzezinski's um, a, a, a secret diplomacy. Then Nixon. Ninety seconds. Uh, I got you. Thank you, comrade, for that info. Yes, comrade. So um, at the beginning of the presentation, they talk about the Congo. So. I want to tell our comrades here about the Congo because uh, something I've learned myself not so long ago, we are in close relationship with the PCCO, PCCO, which is Communist Party of the Congo. And um, the um, one of its leaders, you know, talked to me quite a bit and I, taught me a few things I didn't know. And I think comrades can learn from that too. So there are two Congos. There is the Republic of the Congo and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Big difference. Okay, the Republic of the Congo used to be the French Congo 
colonized by France during the 20th century, okay, till 1960, okay? And it's kind of small, it's about half the size of France, okay? Then the Belgian Congo, which is the Re Democratic Republic of the Congo now, which is huge. It's 76 times the size of Belgium, okay? The second largest country of the African continent, okay? And that's where Patrice Lumumba was from. It's called the Congo Kinshasa. The other one is the Congo Brazzaville. And now, interestingly, Brazzaville, the capital of the Republic of Congo, and Kinshasa, the capital of Democratic Republic of Congo, are next to each other, across from the uh, river. Congo, seconds. Across from the river Congo, right across. Amazing. Okay, and um, so that's that's all. So you know about those two countries because it's very confusing for most people in America. Maybe ninety percent. Okay, that's all. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So uh, just as I, you know, as we we're making this class and as I read about the Sino-Soviet split, uh, it made me think about it. And, you know, I'd like to see what maybe some comrades think about here. Maybe there might be agreement, disagreement on this. Um, but I think the Sino-Soviet split can be an example in the history of the communist movement when petty differences between two countries some may be legitimate on one side or the other. Of course, you know, Khrushchev had de-Stalinization. The uh, People's Republic of China uh, began working with the U.S. and then started playing kind of a counter-revolutionary role against Vietnam. Um, but I think it's an example of how these petty differences can actually um, help the enemy. And we saw that with U.S. imperialism, where uh, basically Nixon came in and met with uh, China so that they could use that as leverage against the Soviet Union and whatever problems we have with Khrushchev, that was obviously um, not a not a good thing when it came to our relations with them. And so I, I just think that that's one of those things where petty disagreements can really cause bigger issues when it comes to the overall fight against imperialism. And another thought I have is I'm looking at the history of Cold War and as we get further and further away from World War II, is I think that peaceful coexistence was a good idea when World War II came to an end and, you know, as we were getting that post-war world. But I think that as time goes on and you see the actions of U.S. imperialism and just what you expect U.S. imperialism to do is to stop all these socialist revolutions throughout the world and, you know, try to spread its hegemony around the world. I, I think that there became a certain point where peaceful coexistence wasn't really viable. And I think that there's a point where we have to fight against um, imperialism and we all have to do that. And I think that maybe there might have been a mistake on the Soviets part with that. But I'm just curious as to what comrades think. All right. So we'll take one more hand before we go back to the section there really quick. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention really quick about uh, Congo Brazzaville. I didn't add it into the slideshow because I thought it would make it too long. Uh, but um, this the that Congo um, also gained independence in 1960. And originally, the, the president that was elected was very anti-communist um, until there was a, an uprising by the trade union movement. Um, and they replaced them with a, a pro-communist um Prime Minister Masamba Debat, 
Um, now, this Congo established relations with the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, North Vietnam, and Cuba. And uh, underneath uh, this president's uh, underneath this president, the conditions of the citizens improved a lot. The country began to industrialize. Health centers and school groups were formed, and they increased the school enrollment rate to the highest in Africa. Um, now, there was an attempted coup in uh, 1965, and uh, the uh, Cuban army troops were were brought in to train the party's militia units. And it's it's been said that the the only reason why the coup was not successful was because of the Cuban army troops' presence. Thank you for that. Coexistence uh, at that time. What, well, what we studied with the school is during the 20th century there was the Soviet Union, and one thing we we remember is during the 70s the Soviet Union and allied countries, like in the UN, for example, they simply made like Women's Day. They just went to the UN and they could just make like a new holiday. That's how powerful the coalition was. So there was a real force in this world. It's not here anymore. I guess it's a touchy subject, but yeah, we definitely have to fight. We definitely do. And that's what's happening now. The world is starting to fight U.S. imperialism. Thank you, comrade. Uh, comrade Angel, really quick, do you have something to want us to say? Yeah, 1948 political affairs during the Stalin period, political affairs, which was the political magazine of the CPUSA, uh, took, uh, reprinted comrade Stalin's um, speech um, called Peaceful Coexistence. And in it, Stalin says clearly that after World War II, when peaceful coexistence was needed more than ever, more than ever after 1945, because uh, there was a danger of the bomb being used. And I want you to remind everybody that uh, Comrade Mao Zedong said during the period that there's no big deal if they drop the atomic bomb. I want you to know he said this because there are so many Chinese that will come out ahead. I thought that was the most ignorant statement I've ever heard in my life. It's not a matter who comes out ahead if the whole world is destroyed. Thank you. Yeah, so about um, Lumumba and Bishop, Maurice Bishop was the name of the left-wing leader of Grenada. Um Neither of those men self-identified as Marxists or as communists. And we, of course, still support them. But I think that that fact is very relevant today because a lot of ultra-leftists are saying that, you know, the new governments in Niger or Gabon, because they don't call themselves communist, we shouldn't support them. And I just want to point out how idealist that line is when people say it. Also, with the Chinese-Soviet split, there's a little off topic, but China's modern policy line is more comparable, at least as far as I'm aware, to that of the Soviet Union than it was to that of Mao. All right. Thank you, comrade. Our comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. We need a whole class on the Sino-Soviet situation. I lived through it. 
I don't know how many people here lived through it. And it was obvious for some of us, just the way we saw we saw Perestroika coming about, what it represented. And we saw the Sino-Soviet split, not as ideological at all. That was the mask that it looked like to the world. But it was basically China trying to take over the world communist movement. And I see it clearly as an example, Trotskyism, Maoism, and now what's going on with the KKE <laughs> um, is that it's a break in the communist movement over who controls the party in the world, who controls the communist movement. And that's what's going on today with, with, the, with the Greeks and the Mexicans, what they're doing, and it's what happened in, in, in that period. Remember, the Cultural Revolution had nothing to do with Stalin, right? And yet it was a road down ultra-leftism. So what was going on in that period was really a study of ultra-leftism, and we should have it at our class. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade. And just to just to kind of expand on that real quick, and you know, not to raise hypothetical questions because we can't really answer those, you know, as Marxists, but just something to think about is if the Sino-Soviet split didn't even occur, if they were able to actually work through their issues uh, between the, you know, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China, just the kind of uh, bulwark they would have remained uh, together against U.S. imperialism at that time. Would things like, you know, the uh, massive invasions after 1991 have happened? Would 1991 and the Soviet Union have even happened? Important questions to think about when we think about the severity of the Sino-Soviet split. And I do agree, we will have a class on that in the future. Yes, um, I wanted to say something regarding Indonesia. So um, basically, um, oh, Barack Obama's mother, actually, um, believe it or not, she married uh, an Indonesian man that they met in that she met in Hawaii named Lolo Sotaro. Sotoro. And um, eventually what happened is they he they the family actually moved back to Indonesia um, right around the time of the, the coup that took out Sukarno and the, that put in the fascist general Suharto. And Barack, this was a Barack Obama's stepfather um, because uh, she or Barack Obama's mother actually had already had him at, uh, around that time and then she remarried she was already divorced at that point so his stepfather worked actually in Saharo's fascist government which is kind of interesting to I, I don't know if most people knew that there's something something interesting I found out about and I wanted to share thank you comrade I never knew that I knew that Barack Obama had spent time in Indonesia but I didn't know it had connection to that so that's definitely something I think should be looked into more yes on the problem of the sino-soviet split definitely there was no need for the split basically what should have been done is that they could have still criticized the issue of revisionism that was permeated throughout the world communist movement while without having to openly attack each other because basically this played to the benefit of U.S. imperialism between CPSU initially launching the provocative rounds for the split for the so-called secret speech and eventually fighting each other, especially with the U.S. aligning itself with U.S. imperialism 
at major points, but there should have been unity while still criticizing without openly singling out anyone in the international communist movement, and especially the importance today of nowadays, it's best to have a non-aligned movement, yet international solidarity. Great. Thank you, comrade. All right. And I don't think we have any new members tonight, but of course, if you're new, we can get that back up on the screen. So this is our domestic section, the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. So to start off with Kennedy's assassination, on November 1st, 1963, the South Vietnamese government was overthrown. The coup had the tacit approval of the Kennedy administration. President Diem was assassinated after refusing an American offer of safety if he agreed to resign. On November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States, was assassinated while riding in a presidential motorcade through Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. On Sunday, November 24th, at 11.21 a.m., as Lee Harvey Oswald, the shooter, was being escorted to a car in the basement of the Dallas police headquarters for the transfer from the city jail to the county jail, he was shot by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby. The shooting was broadcast live on television. On December 9, 1963, the Warren Commission received the FBI's report of its investigation, which concluded that three bullets had been fired, the first striking Kennedy in the upper back, the second striking Connolly, and the third striking Kennedy in the head, killing him. On September 24, 1964, the Warren Commission concluded that Lee Oswald had acted alone in killing Kennedy. It made no conclusions as to Oswald's motive, but noted his Marxism, anti-authoritarianism, violent tendencies, failure to form personal relationships, and his desire to be significant in history. Vietnam War protests. United States military aid increased during 1964. By 1965, President Johnson authorized U.S. troops to begin military offensives and started the systematic bombing of North Vietnam. By 1968, the number of U.S. forces surpassed 500,000. During that year's presidential campaign, Americans were deeply divided by the deteriorating military and political situation in Vietnam. Vietnam War protests began among peace activists and leftist intellectuals on college campuses, but gained national promise, prominence in 1965 after the United States began bombing North Vietnam in earnest. U.S. casualties had reached 15,058 killed and 109,527 wounded. The Vietnam War was costing the United States some $25 billion per year, and disillusionment was beginning to reach greater sections of the taxpaying public. After a brutal confrontation with the soldiers and the U.S. Marshals protecting the building, hundreds of demonstrators were arrested. One of them was author Norman Mailer, who chronicled the events in his book, The Armies of the Night. In 1967, the anti-war movement got a big boost when the civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. went public with his opposition to the war on moral grounds, condemning the war's diversion of federal funds from domestic programs, as well as the disproportionate number of black casualties in relation to the total number of soldiers killed in the war. By February 1968, 
A Gallup poll showed only 35% of the population approved of Johnson's handling of the war and full a full 50% disapproved. By 1969, the government instituted the first U.S. draft lottery since World War II, inciting a vast amount of controversy and causing many young men to flee to Canada to avoid conscription. The 1968 election. The 1968 United States election were held on November 5th and elected members of the 91st United States Congress. The election took place during the Vietnam War in the same year as the Tet Offensive, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, who was involved in that election, and the protests of 1968. The Republican Party won control of the presidency and picked up seats in the House and Senate, although the Democratic Party retained control of the Congress. In the presidential election, Republican former Vice President Richard Nixon, remember he was the Vice President of Eisenhower, defeated Democratic incumbent Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who was the Vice President of Johnson. Nixon won the popular vote by less than one point, but took most states outside the Northeast and comfortably won the electoral vote. This was the first of two times since 1889 that a newly elected president's party failed to control either House of Congress. In fact, President Richard N. Nixon had been elected in 1968 due to, in large part, promise to end the Vietnam War. And until April 1970, it appeared he was on his way to fulfilling that campaign promise as military operations were seemingly winding down. However, on April 30th, 1970, President Nixon authorized U.S. troops to invade Cambodia, a neutral nation west of Vietnam. North Vietnamese troops were using safe havens in Cambodia to launch attacks on U.S.-backed South Vietnamese and parts of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, a supply route used by the North Vietnamese, passed through Cambodia. Even before Nixon's formal announcement of the invasion, Rumors of the U.S. military incursion into Cambodia resulted in protests at colleges and universities across the country. At Kent State, these protests began on May 1st, the day after the invasion. So let's talk about the Kent State shooting. On May 4th, 1970, members of the Ohio National Guard opened fire on a crowd gathered to protest the Vietnam War. Four Kent State University students were killed and nine were injured. In its immediate aftermath, a student-led strike forced the temporary closure of colleges and universities across the country. That night in downtown Kent, there were reports of violent clashes between students and local police. Police alleged that their cars were hit with bottles and that students stopped traffic and lit bonfires in the streets. Reinforcements were called in from neighboring communities and Kent Mayor Leroy Citrome declared a state of emergency before ordering all the bars in the town closed. Satrome had also contacted Ohio Governor James Rhodes seeking assistance. Satrome's decision to close the bars angered the protesters more and increased the size of the crowds on the streets of the town. Police were eventually able to move the protesters back toward campus using tear gas to disperse, disperse the crowd. However, the stage was set for trouble. General Canterbury ordered his men to lock and load their weapons and fire tear gas into the crowd. The guardsmen soon retreated up Blanket Hill. When they reached the top of the hill, witnesses say 28 of them suddenly turned and fired their M1 rifles, some into the air 
some directly into the crowd of protesters. Over just a 13-second period, nearly 70 shots were fired in total. In all, four Kent State students, Jeffrey Miller, Allison Krauss, William Schroeder, and Sandra Schuer, were killed, and nine others were injured. Schroeder was shot in the back, as were two of the injured, Robert Stamps and Dean Collar. Numerous investigatory commissions and court trials followed, during which the members of the Ohio National Guard testified that they felt the need to discharge their weapons because they feared for their lives. Uh, where have we heard that recently? And our civil suit followed by injured Kent State students and their families, a settlement was reached in 1979 in which the Ohio National Guard agreed to pay those injured in the events of May 4, 1970, a total of $675,000. COINTELPRO was a series of covert and illegal projects actively conducted by the United States FBI aimed at surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting domestic American political organizations from 1965 to 1971. Targeted organizations include feminist organizations, the Communist Party USA, anti-war organizations, civil and black rights movements, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panther Party, environmentalists and animal rights groups, the American Indian Movement, Chicano and Mexican-American groups like the Brown Berets, the United Farm Workers, independence groups like the Young Lords and the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, and also included were many new left orgs, the Klan, and some far-right groups such as the National States Party. Centralized operations under COINTELPRO officially began in August 1956 with a program designed to increase factionalism, cause disruption, and win defections inside the Communist Party USA. Tactics included anonymous phone calls, internal revenue service audits, the creation of documents that would divide the American Communist organization internally. After the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Hoover singled out King as a major target for COINTELPRO. Under pressure from Hoover to focus on King, Sullivan wrote, quote, in the light of King's powerful demagogic speech, we must mark him now if we have not done so before. As the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro and national security, end quote. During the same period, the program also targeted Malcolm X. Amidst the un urban unrest of July, August 1967, the FBI began COINTEL pro-Black hate, which focused on King and the SCLC, I believe that's the uh, Southern uh, Christian something conference, as well as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM, the Deacons for Defense and Justice, Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, and the Nation of Islam. Black Hate established the Ghetto Informant Program and instructed 23 FBI offices to, quote, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of Black nationalist hate-type organizations. The program was secret until March 8, 1971, when the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI burgled an FBI field office in Medea, Pennsylvania, taking, or taking several dossiers 
and exposed the program by passing this material to news agencies. The boxing match known as the fight of the century between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier in March 1971 provided cover for the activist group to have successfully pull off the burglary. Muhammad Ali was a COINTELPRO target because he had joined the Nation of Islam and the anti-war movement. And continued, and this is our uh, second to last slide, I believe. According to attorney Brian Glick in his book, War at Home, the FBI used five main methods during COINTELPRO. Infiltration, agents and informers did not merely spy on political activists. Their main purpose was to discredit, disrupt, and negatively direct action. Psychological warfare, the FBI and police used a myriad of dirty tricks to undermine movements. They planted false media stories and published bogus leaflets and other publications in the name of targeted groups. They forged correspondence, sent anonymous, anonymous letters, and made anonymous telephone calls. They spread misinformation about meetings and events, set up pseudo-movement groups run by government agents, and manipulated or strong-armed parents, employers, landlords, school officials, and others to cause trouble for activists. They used bad jacketing to create suspicion about targeted activists, sometimes with lethal consequences. Harassment via the legal system. The FBI and police abused the legal system to harass dissidents and make them appear to be criminals. Officers of the law gave perjured testimony and presented fabricated evidence as pretext for false arrests and wrongful imprisonment. They discriminatorily enforced tax laws and other government regulations and used conspicuous surveillance, investigative interviews, and grand jury subpoenas to intimidate activists and silence their supporters. Illegal force. The FBI conspired with local police departments to threaten dissidents, to conduct illegal break-ins to search dissident homes, and to commit vandalism, assaults, beatings, and assassinations. The objective was to frighten or eliminate dissidents and disrupt their movements. And lastly, to undermine public opinion. One of the primary ways the FBI targeted organizations were by challenging their reputations in the community and denying them a platform to gain legitimacy. Hoover specifically designed programs to block leaders from, quote, spreading their philosophy publicly or through the communications media, end quote. Furthermore, the organization created and controlled negative media meant to undermine black power organizations. For instance, they oversaw the creation of documentaries skillfully edited to paint the Black Panther Party as aggressive and false newspapers that spread misinformation about party members. The ability of the FBI to create distrust within and between revolutionary organizations tainted their public image and weakened chances at unity and public support. And just to end off this class tonight, American imperialism in 1975. The 1960s and 70s were a time of immense social upheaval at home and excessive military intervention abroad. 58,220 U.S. troops died in Vietnam, and yet the United States still lost the war and failed to destroy socialist Cuba as well. The forces of neoliberalism and neoconservatism were about to emerge, however, and the upcoming 1980s would see a huge economic shift in the U.S. away from FDR's policies while continuing intervention abroad. And this series will be continued next month in history of U.S. imperialism, end of the Cold War, which will be from about 1975 to 1990. And with that, 
we'll stop for our last round of questions and comments. It'll have to be just the hands that are up, though. Yes, comrade. So earlier, I uh, mentioned about Pacific coexistence between uh, the USSR and the United States. And um, OK, so basically, uh, the leadership in, in the Soviet Union was consistent from its beginning. Lenin, Stalin, uh, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and possibly the beginning of Gorbachev. Okay, the deal was you cannot, there will not be a war and after World War II, a nuclear war between uh, the USSR and the United States. There will not be. That's co Pacific coexistence. It never meant that the USSR would not attempt to uh, help socialist uh, insurrection or you know, revolutions throughout the world. And they did. Earlier, our comrade said, every year there was a new 60. joining the camp. And that's right, it did happen. So two separate issues, okay? No war between those two states and yet support of revolution, just like the US supported counter-revolution. Thank you. Thank you, come back. Hey there, great class. So yeah, on the peaceful coexistence, um, I just think it's very interesting that um, I think the Sino-Soviet split happened around the, the 60s, but really Mao could not actually defeat his um, his anti-Soviet, anti I guess to say, but the, the, the faction of the, of the party that wanted to support the Soviet Union in unity until about 1965 during when he decided to have a cultural revolution, I would argue a counter-revolution to remove them. And at the same time, you actually see the war in uh, Vietnam escalate because uh, Mao was too busy purging uh, his party members that wanted uh, unity with the Soviet Union. Um, I just find that really conveniently interesting. I think Mao, I think it was mentioned that uh, Khrushchev maybe was not a, a um, Khrushchev wasn't really a good uh, leader. I Maybe Mao was a good communist, but I definitely don't think he was a great leader. Um, Sixty. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Uh, uh, we need we need to have a class on the Cultural Revolution separate from tonight. That needs to be a whole class. A um, lot of information I got during that period of time. But on the issue of Contempo, Contempo is still going on. If you think these splits in the left parties, including Workers' World, including PCUSA. If you think that has nothing to do with the government, then you're dreaming. That's all. The government has a special department to disrupt effective left groups. They don't bother other groups that are not effective. But those that were effective, the Black Panther Party, groups like that at the time, the CPUSA. So that under the guise of political disagreements, there are groups in the left, like the KKE, who I am convinced are doing the same thing that the State Department would do throughout the communist movement. 60 so it's not, it has not ended. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Um, uh, there's an interesting book, The Burglary. It's about uh, the people who broke in and stole the Quintal Pro file by uh, Betty uh, Medsker. It's very good. Thanks. I have read that book. That is a fantastic book. Thank you, comrade. Uh, nothing has changed. The Wolf Vote 
Today we use the internet instead of the newspapers and TV. And they spread lies. And all the willing fools who accept those lies. I have to tell you, I've never seen anything like it. <clears throat> Today they use different uh, methods, but it's the same thing. To slander and make ineffective the real left. The real left. And they push the fake left so that people will follow the fake left. Every time there is a split in an organization of the left, don't be foolish. The government is involved. Government is involved. You don't think the government was involved in in, um, in what happened in the Sino-Soviet thing? Come on. Let's be real. They, they were involved. They were involved in everything to split the movement. So when you hear about a group that splits from this group or that group today, the government is involved, and the people who believe that are willing idiots. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. And I'll just go ahead and say that, you know, there's a lot of similarities between what was going on in COINTELPRO and what you see, you know, today with, uh, you know, for example, in the George Floyd protests in 2020, it was revealed that in a couple of different places, there were actually FBI informants that were working in the midst of that um, and trying to promote kind of this anarchistic violence uh, in those protests. So it's still happening. Um, even if it's not called COINTELPRO. Yeah, one thing on the last slide, there should be really focused a little more on the international scale because FDR's policies were really just uh, the policies of John Maynard Keynes or what is called Keynesian economics where the government is supposed to subsidize industry to promote production. And that was never going to last, of course, but and eventually leading to that neoliberal economic model where austerity and mass privatization of social services to the point where they really want it to be just where it's the army, police, and the government, and the rest is just pretty much wiped off of uh, the public section of the economy. But that's my comment. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, my comment was on what was mentioned previously. The internet has really revolutionized a lot of communication, but at the other hand, it's now so consolidated the control. And we've seen, for example, the Korean Friendship Association USA has had YouTube channels taken down, has had Twitter suspended. And then we know within these platforms, certain groups or individuals can be elevated and others can be pushed down. And we've seen with what's called NAFO or NAFO, they, this is basically, it's what the U.S. accuses other people of doing is what the U.S. is doing, like these troll farms. And definitely it's all related to the left to squash the creation of a real left. That's definitely what's going on. That's why we suffer all these attacks. So we just have to keep going. All right. Thank you, comrade. And um, before we go ahead and end tonight, comrade general secretary, is there anything you want to say? 
Yeah, I just want to warn over people who go on the internet, the younger generation, beware of people and forces that are calling for disunity in the left, disunity on the side of the communist movement. Beware of them. You know, Lenin talked about polemics. He didn't talk about splitting and attacking. And these people uh, use the excuse of uh, discussion and debate. They're doing the work of the government. They're doing, they always do the work of the man, as we used to say. So just be careful. Don't listen to anything. They use social issues. Uh, he beat his wife. Uh, he did this. He did that. Has nothing to do with freeing the working class of oppression from capitalism. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.